Stewardship is the topic. Stewardship is about using and managing everything you have for God's glory. Jesus is our Savior. We're reminded of that again and again in the first half of our worship service. Jesus is our Savior, and when we're saved, he becomes our Lord. And that means he is Lord, he is master of everything we have. Lord of all our resources, including our time and talents, our gifts, our money. This sermon is not about stewardship in general, and stewardship is a very big topic. This sermon is about our money, financial stewardship. We, we all have some sense that Christians are called to give to God's church and kingdom, right? But, but what does that involve? What does that mean exactly? R.C. Sproul, a, a, a well-known pastor, theologian, you may have heard of him, he was introduced to a very particular attitude about giving and the church at a young age. Uh, it was when his uncle took him to a baseball game, and as they arrived and, and were walking in looking for their, their seats, at one point his uncle said, hey, hold on to your wallet. So young R.C. did. A little later, as they're sitting there, he asked his uncle why he had said that. And the uncle said, well, I saw a priest over there, and, and all they want is your money. Now, the fact is, I don't know if that uncle was a, a Christian or a believer, a Catholic or otherwise, but even some Christians have a cynical view about, about giving to the church, Right? or if not a cynical view, a little bit of a grumpy attitude about it, the feeling is that giving is a burden, when in fact, giving is a blessing. It's a blessing. A lot has been said about giving and tithing. Peter Marshall said once, give according to your income. He gave this advice, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. There are all sorts of testimonies you can find about giving out there. J.L. Kraft, head of the Kraft Cheese Corporation, who had given approximately 25% of his enormous income to Christian causes for many years, said this, the only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends is the money I have given to the Lord. Kraft. J.D. Rockefeller said, I never would have been able to tie the first million dollars I made if I had not started tithing young, if I had not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. The devotional Today in the Word once quoted Captain Levy, a believer from Philadelphia, being asked how he could give so much to the Lord and still possess great wealth. The captain replied, oh, as I shovel it out, he shovels it in and the Lord has a much bigger shovel than I do. Many Christians in this room, many of you, I know, can give testimony to God's provision when they give. Sarah and I can definitely give testimony to that in our lives. We could keep listening to uh, little sayings about giving all day, and we could hear testimonies all morning, and those are powerful. But what we're going to do is dig into God's word on this matter. I want to convince you of the joy and blessing of tithing. The world says it's a burden. Even some believers think it's a burden. I want to show you another way. Our money 
what we earn, how we spend it, it's one of the most private things in the world. It's one of the most private things in our society. More than likely, you have no idea what anyone else in this room makes except for your two pastors. And we certainly, I wasn't trying to, yeah, (laughs) I was just trying to, because you do. Um, But certainly, we don't, we don't know, even if we know that or have an idea of what someone makes, we don't know all the details and the ins and outs of, of what someone makes, how they spend it, what they give. And, and we keep that private today. People don't, and people don't want to be told what to do with their money. They're like, that's my business. And people can even get angry about that. But here's the thing. Here's, here's why I'm, I'm preaching about it. Christian financial stewardship is not a private matter. God's word says a lot about our money. And a church that fails to address your financial stewardship and giving would be failing in its calling to preach the gospel. And in fact, I hope you would not attend or be a member of a church that fails to address and speak about your financial giving. It's said that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in those Gospels, one out of every six verses deals with money. Of the 29 parables Jesus told, 16 deal with a person as money. Malachi 6 is really the foundational text for God's people when we talk about financial stewardship and tithing. So this is what we're going to dig into. The verses start with, I, the Lord, do not change. Now that's a classic statement of a particular doctrine. And that's the doctrine of God's immutability. The doctrine of God's immutability. You know what that is? That means God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. People either change for the better or worse. God can't get better because that would mean he was less perfect earlier, which means he wouldn't have been God. He can't get any worse either because then he'd become imperfect, which he can't be. Part of the definition of being God is that he is perfect in all his attributes. God is making this statement an answer to a question. An answer to a question. I've got to give you the context a little bit here. The people have been questioning the faithfulness of God. They were saying that God was not loving them fully. That God had not prospered them as he should have. And the goofy thing about that is the people themselves were not being faithful to God. And as, as you read what's going on, we might put what the people were saying this way. And, and I'm putting it in such a way so that you can see just how silly they were being. God, why are you being unfaithful to us? God, why aren't you blessing us? We have been completely devoted and faithful to you. Well, except for the fact that we're divorcing our wives in order to marry unbelievers. Oh, and except that we're allowing the priests to offer blemished animals in the temple. Oh, and except for the tithing, we haven't been doing that. But, but God, we have been keeping our side of the covenant in the areas that seem important to us. So why aren't you prospering us? It's like obedience to God just doesn't work. We've tried We've done our best in what we thought was important, but it's not working. God has not blessed us. He's been unfaithful. With that going on, with that disobedience, with these accusations, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. 
in what ways do you think he would say he doesn't change? We'd expect him to say, I have not changed in my justice and wrath and anger against sin. Instead, we get, I do not change, and so you are not destroyed. That's what verse 6 says. It's because of his immutability, not that he's getting angry, but that the people have not been totally wiped out. So the attributes that God is highlighting here in his immutability are his unchanging mercy, his unchanging grace and love and patience and faithfulness. I'm still in verse 6. That, O descendants of Jacob, that how he refers to them there, it's packed with meaning. More literally, it says, you never cease to be children of Jacob. Or another way to say it more literally is to say, you always remain children of Jacob. Earlier in the book, we find out that when he uses the word Jacob to refer to them, children of Jacob, he basically means sinner. Sinner. So what God is saying is, you never stop being sinners. You persist in sin. The problem is not with God, but it's with the people and the fact that they are not changing. Verse 7 tells us this has been a persistent problem throughout the generations, yet we're finding God has been faithful. Even with the exile, he didn't totally wipe them out, though they deserved it, but he preserved the remnant. Even now in Malachi's day, after the exile, despite his faithfulness, they're not getting it. But then God still calls his people to return to him in verse 7. Return to me. And I will return to you. That's amazing. That's amazing grace. He's still calling out to them. Humanly speaking, he shouldn't have bothered. But he continues to show mercy. And of course, that's God's message from Adam through Noah to Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Those whose hearts were touched at Pentecost said, What shall we do? And the answer was what? Repent. Repent. That's the message of the apostles. The final message of final judgment in Revelation is this. And this is an older translation. And they repented not. Final message of judgment. And they repented not. In Malachi, just earlier... Before these verses, God is saying he's coming to judge. And given that he's coming to judge, it's essential that the people repent and turn to God. After this, verse 16, we read about the end of time again and what's called the book of remembrance. And how, and we're going we're gonna to mention that a little bit tonight in the end times actually, the book of remembrance and how we'll be called to stand before God the judge. And that book of Perfect remembrance will be opened. So imagine that day coming and standing there. God's looking at you and saying, didn't I tell you to return to me? Didn't I tell you to repent? And you have to say, yeah, you did. I heard it. I heard it. And if you didn't repent, there will be no discussion possible. There will be no appeal. It will be too late. But if we did turn, 
and follow our Savior, and we're faithful to him in our lives, faithful in what he's entrusted to us, Matthew 25 tells us that Jesus will say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear God say. So when God says, return to me, we want to listen. They ask, after this, this patient, gracious calling his people to himself, they ask a question. The very end of verse 7, how are we to return? That's, that's a very good question because turning, repentance in our lives is always specific and concrete. Repentance is turning from one way to another. It's turning around, and it's always turning from something specific to something specific. And God gets into the specifics here. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. And the people say, well, how do we rob you? You know, it's kind of like they're playing dumb, like, like they, they've been fine all along, like they haven't been marrying unbelievers, they haven't been withholding their tithes and all the rest. God continues, how did you rob me? In tithes and offerings, that's how. Repentance is always specific and concrete. What is God talking about specifically? The tithe referred to a tenth of the people's produce or, or income that was given to God for the temple service. It especially allowed the Levites, uh, the priests, to live and eat, maintain the temple. You can see some of that in Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. And, and, and we touched on this a little bit in the Joshua series when they entered into the land, but that whole temple thing and the priest thing, a lot of that was about, there, were, there was the sacrificial system back then, but a lot of it was upholding and supporting the teaching of God's word throughout the land. Do you remember that? That's what they were responsible for. Also from that tithe, Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29, the down and the out were cared for, like the foreigner in the land, the aliens, the Bible says, orphans, widows. Now, the people had probably made some contributions to the Levites, the temple service, but verse 10, they had not given the whole tithe. And certainly from everything we see, they had not presented even what they did with a willing and thankful heart. They had many excuses in their day. They had a lot of excuses. The economy is weak. We're not making as much, God. And that's true. The economy was weak. The political circumstances are difficult. We're in uncertain times. And that's true. They were in uncertain times. You can imagine them standing there and they're like, what? This, this is why you're so upset with us? I mean, I know it's a command and all, but is it really that important? Because it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal to us, but it was. God is saying it really is that important. Return to me in this. And God calls his people to return to him today too. He's telling us, don't rob me by withholding your tithes and offerings. We have to ask ourselves the question, when, when we meet him on that last day, will he consider us thieves or faithful stewards? 
And maybe you're like, what? Are you serious, pastor? Tithes? Isn't this in the Old Testament? And isn't this an Old Testament sort of thing that we really don't have to take all that seriously? Well, this is in the Old Testament, but as Reformed Christians especially, we know that the entire Word of God is for us today. And while certain types of laws were abrogated, as we say, we use that kind of technical word, certain types of Old Testament laws were abrogated in the New Testament. The moral law was not. There's some overlap in the types of laws, but roughly ceremonial laws having to do with the sacrificial system. We don't sacrifice lambs here on Sunday mornings. Those types of ceremonial laws were fulfilled by Christ being our sacrificial lamb once and for all for our atonement. The judicial laws are all sorts of laws related to the fact that Israel was, was a nation in, in the world. And, and of course, that's not how the church is today. Uh, God's people are from many nations. The judicial laws were abrogated. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, for example, were certainly not done away with, and neither was tithing. Neither was tithing, and, and which it was especially about supporting the teaching of God's word and the care for those in need. And, and, and when, you, when you think about it that way, you see that's not so far removed from what we give to today, is it? Supporting the gospel going out, supporting the education and teaching and preaching of God's word, and giving to those in need. We just did that this morning again. So it's not, it's not as far removed as you might think. In fact, most Christian teachers that you hear believe, if anything, that because we have more grace displayed in the New Testament, if anything, God's calling for his people is greater in this area today. In the New Testament, we see clearly what was only promised and pointed ahead to in the Old Testament, the gift of God's Son, Jesus to save his people from their sins. The principle and the idea of tithing 10% of one's income was connected closely with the idea of God's having given his people gifts. Because of God's gifts, God's people then and now are called to give back. And that was to get the people out of an entitlement attitude. God doesn't want his people to have an entitlement attitude where God's people think they deserve everything they have. It's mine. I earned it. I get to keep it. I get to do whatever I want. God says, no, no, no. It's all a gift. It's a gift. And with that principle in mind, we can only want to give more today when we have seen and been given the ultimate gift, the sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ. That's a gift that they just saw in part, in shadows in the Old Testament. They were looking ahead. We see it clearly. There's no question at all that for God's people, giving a tithe is the minimum. And the genius of God's plan here is that it works for everyone, no matter what your income is, because it's proportional giving. We give as we've been blessed. Whether you've been blessed with 5,000 a year, 50,000, 150,000, 500,000. 10% is 10%. Now, despite the, the 
the continuing authority of the Old Testament and the principle of the tithe and, and verses like, listen to Luke 12, 48, uh, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Well, despite all things, people still sometimes want a verse that shows in the New Testament we tithe. I'm going to give you one. Matthew 23, 23 and Luke eleven forty two record the same event in two different Gospels. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Without neglecting the former. Jesus is not criticizing the Pharisees for tithing. He affirms that. He's basically saying, hey, you're getting one thing right, the tithe, but not the more important things, like practicing justice and mercy and and faithfulness. And some of that has to do with tithing from the heart as well as other stuff. But, But Jesus is not throwing out the tithe. He affirms it. Tithes and offerings. The tithe, by definition, it's in the word. It means 10% of our income. Offerings are separate. They're above and beyond that. And of course, every person has a unique situation. So how this all works out in our lives does end up being done with prayer before God, discussion, a personal decision and choice. On tithes and offerings, any number of Christians believe in tithing to their local church needs, and then their offerings are above and beyond that to many good and necessary Christian causes and ministries. In any case, the priority in our tithing should be for our local church needs. And of course, as you know, just in our situation, you give to our general fund, about a quarter of that goes outside our church already. So when you give to that, you're also giving outside. Listen as our text goes on. How do we rob you in tithes and offerings? Verse 9, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. And then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. So sometimes we take all this as burdensome, but, but it's not. It, it's a great blessing. God calls his people to test him and see if he won't bless. Remember the patience and love and grace in which God is saying all of this? They were being blatantly disobedient. They used all sorts of excuses. They robbed God, but he's still inviting them back to bless them. God is almost wooing them to just try it. He he really wants them to experience the open floodgates of heaven. God says some strong words here and clear ones, but it doesn't come across like he's wringing their necks and saying, Do it! Tithe! It's more like he's saying, trust me. Test me. 
you'll like it. And there's something along those lines that's happened in my home many times. My, my wonderful, skilled wife in many ways, but in cooking, I'm thinking of here, will make a meal that's a little different. She's put it together. And though our girls are decently adventurous eaters, there are times they don't want to touch it because it's different, because it looks kind of odd. And we get after that after them. And our thing is always, hey, you've got to at least give everything a try. And Olivia, I'm sorry, but I can just picture your face when kicking and screaming, most of the time, not literally, when kicking and screaming, she finally tastes a little bit. And then, not always, but sometimes, She'll get this sheepish smile, and we're like, you like it, don't you? And she's like, yeah. And she feels a little foolish and then wolfs down the rest of the meal. God is saying to you, try it. You'll like it. Trust me, my wayward, wandering, sometimes foolish, often immature, too untrusting people. You're not, I, I ask this for a reason. Listen to me. Obey, and I will bless you. I'll open the floodgates of heaven. You think it will taste sour to do that, to write that check every week, but it's sweet. You're going to find great joy. And as, as you learn to listen to me and obey and live in my provision, not in your own provision and your own worries about that provision and lack of faith, Congregation, brothers and sisters, I am not here this morning giving this message to make you feel guilty. I'm not here to make you feel bad. God is giving us an irresistible invitation. Test me. Just see how great it is to obey and follow me. Sometimes it's like we're hold, it's like we feel like we're holding the end of, of the hose, which gives us God's blessings. No water's coming out. We're like, what's going on? And then we look, and we're, we're stepping on the hose. We're preventing the blessings ourselves. We've been standing on that hose maybe for a very long time. Remember, this is not talking about the blessing of salvation. We can't block salvation talk about irresistible grace. God will save those whom he wants. He won't let up. We're talking about whether we're living in the fullness of salvation or not. Test me in this. It's, it's, it's almost like a humbling and, and humiliating thing for the God of the universe to say. He could just say, do it. But he's saying, test me. Kind of humbling. But then Our God has been known to do humbling things, hasn't he? A number of years down the road from here, Jesus would come, humble himself to assume human flesh, to die on a cross for our sins. God has a habit of graciously stooping down to his children, showing us his grace, calling us to return. The Lord speaks of floodgates of heaven opening. He says they'll have so much that they will not have enough storage space for the harvest. 
the insects and other pests that will be giving them problems will stop. The nations will be blessed. Yours will be a delightful land. God delights in creation. He says yours will be a delightful land. God delights in his creation. God absolutely delights in recreating his people after the image of Jesus. He delights in sharing with us the abundance of his blessings that are in Jesus. What blessings now exactly? What are the blessings? Material blessings, spiritual blessings, health and wealth. Of course, the main blessing is Jesus himself, the gift from heaven. And we read in Jesus, the Father gives all things to his people. He pours out his heavenly gifts, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he provides everything we need in life and death. I don't, I don't believe that there's any promise that you will become wealthy and rich, as you will hear often from preachers on TV. In fact, it's kind of ironic. You noticed that a couple weeks ago? It's ironic that the Crystal Cathedral, which sort of began this health and wealth gospel in our country, is now filing for bankruptcy. There is no doubt that the prosperity gospel of health and wealth, of, of sort of a guaranteed wealth and guaranteed health, if you just give so much to such and such ministry, there's no doubt about it. That's a bankrupt message and theology. It's false. It's very prevalent. I don't know how much in, in the circles that we run in, but it's very prevalent in our nation. Thankfully, I don't think it is super prevalent here. The Bible doesn't promise you'll become a millionaire if you start tithing today. But... The floodgates of heaven will be open. And that's a whole lot greater than being a millionaire. With the gift of Jesus and everything related to him, we are richer, even when we're poor, than the wealthiest person on earth without Jesus. And he will provide. It does not exclude your material needs. He will provide. And you'll find that he'll provide in amazing and surprising ways for you and your family. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Everything you could ever need, God will provide. I think we have to be honest and say that, that too many of us are missing life under an open heaven. Maybe we have some real turning to do, specifically in our tithes and offerings. Maybe we've been robbing God for a while. God is patient. He's calling us to return. We still have time, even before 2010 ends, by God's grace, to get our financial house in order. If we need to, there's still time. With the floodgates of heaven open, the world will notice. The mission of God and his church will be further. People will yearn for what we have and experience the blessings of God. And, and God will bless you too. That's his promise. The Lord is wooing you today. He says, my child, my son, my daughter, test me. Trust me. Try me. And when you do, you're going to have a very sheepish look on your face because you'll find out 
what you've been missing out on all along, the blessing, the sweetness of obeying God in your giving. 